turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we want to look at uh, the continued argument of Paul to people who said they were free, who had superior knowledge, they claimed, and were going to idols' temples in the name of getting good meat, cheap meat, but some of them were actually going to the idol services, and Paul is trying to get them flee idolatry, flee it, stay away from the temple altogether. But in this, he's got a party that's arguing with him and really basically contending we can go, uh, we're mature enough. It's these ignorant Christians that feel the meat has been demonized. They've got the hang-ups. So Paul begins to uh, use the argument from chapter 8 to 10 that in chapter 8, he lays down the principle, let's don't do anything that might offend a weak brother who has less knowledge. But their arrogance is there, and he knows it. Then he uses the argument in chapter 9. By the way, it's a part of Christianity to make sacrifices and to even limit freedoms for the sake of others. This is the model of Christ. This is the model of Paul's ministry. He gave up, gave up pay, marriage, made many sacrifices to be effective. So he said, sacrifice and giving up for the sake of others is a part of Christianity, right? That's what he says. Now, in chapter 10, we wrapped up in nine that you can be in this race, but it doesn't guarantee you're going to win. And it doesn't guarantee there's any reward for your running because you have to do it according to God's will. Now he picks up chapter 10 to carry this out. Let me tell you about an entire nation who failed, though being freed. Their failure that he's going to describe didn't take place in Egypt, eating cucumbers and making bricks without straw under a tyrannical pharaoh. No, no, they failed after they were liberated from Egypt. They're out of Egypt, but it didn't keep them from failing miserably. And he's going to use this and apply it. It is personal. He takes this story and he says three times, I'm writing this to warn you. I'm writing this as an example to you. I'm writing this to instruct you. Don't leave Old Testament stories in the Old Testament. The lesson in numbers and the journey, it is to you I'm talking to. He's telling these Corinthians, and he's talking to us. And he's saying, you can be saved and still fail miserably. You can be destined for heaven and go through four marriages. You can go to jail for being a pedophile, even as a pastor, just being saved doesn't mean you can't fail. Because he's going to talk about the failures of the free people, taking on the arrogant pride of this party. So there's four things I'm going to look at in the text. First of all, the privileges of a free people. What were their privileges? Two, what were their perils? We'll look at about six of them. And then he mentioned pride and its connection to a free people. Finally, God's promise. Four Ps. Privileges, peril, 
pride, and a promise. Listen to what he says. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, and you are. Every time he says that, it's because they are. Brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples for us and warning, and the word warning is instruction, corrective instruction, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Privileges. He mentions five things in verses 1 through 4. All that they shared in in common. All the people that came out with Moses out of Egypt. And he begins to name this. And listen what their their privileges were. Uh, You all came under the cloud, the cloud that led them through the wilderness. Uh, You all came through the sea. You had the same miraculous deliverance under the hand of God. You were all baptized or identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from a spiritual rock. And what was the rock? The rabbi said this rock that gave water followed them, literally, a literal rock followed them out of the journey. Paul said, no, no, the ultimate source of meeting their need was Christ. He used a physical rock, but he, the ultimate rock, the cloud, the fire, the one who opened up the Red Sea, the angel of the Lord. He was the sustainer of this people. He was the protector. He was that rock that led them all the way through the wilderness. Could you ever imagine greater privileges than saying, hey, I've been led by the very cloud of God. I have been fed right out of the bakeries of heaven. My daily portion of food is sent from me right out of heaven. God the Son himself is the source of my water. 
My leadership through the wilderness is Christ alone. He is the rock. I am identified with him. I am identified with him. How could I ever, ever, ever fail when I've been given such privileges? Could you be more blessed? Christ is my leader. Christ is my protection from the sun, my fire by night to keep me warm, my sustainer. My God has fed me from his hand for 40 years. And all of us, so we've got it made. You can't be more blessed escaping Pharaoh, Egypt. We've got it made. So he just says, look at what great, great privileges. And he says that by all, they all, they all enjoyed the same thing. But notice that one little term right there. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. And why not? Because their privileges didn't keep them from sinning against God and facing the perils. And he named six things they did. First of all, they craved evil things in verse 6 to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Have you ever thought, what, what is there to lust for in the desert? I mean, this wasn't even the mall. I mean, get me in a desert. It ought to be every husband's dream to move to a desert with his wife. There's no malls. No shopping centers. And yet they got out in the desert. You know, it's an amazing thing, church history. Uh, a lot of the early church moved out to monasteries and they thought that would make them more holy and they just became more wicked, but they just did it out in the desert. That didn't get any better. If we put you in your state, did, that, did you know if we put you on an island, we can't keep you from lusting or wanting something you don't have or wanting something God doesn't want. The idea is here, they went out there with all these blessings with all this kind of uh, deliverance for them. And they, it's like, they, I still want something. And what did they lust for? If you read the narrative, get this. They lusted for cucumbers. They said, we, we want to go back to Egypt. They lusted for a different kind of leader. They got sick of manna. They got sick of quail. They wanted anything but what the will of God was. And when you start lusting, and the word is really, don't make lust equal sex. Lust just means strong desire for anything that God doesn't want you to have. That's why he told a young preacher, if you could ever get where you could be content, you'll be godly. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. And like the American way of life is to keep us panting and wanting something all the time. You can't be satisfied. And this was them. He said, they were pictured as a dog with his tongue hanging out. Uh, I, I want more, I want more. What do you want more of? You've been making bricks. You've been slaves. You've been living on melons. You haven't had any meat. You, I'm bringing you from slavery. Now you're out here, and basically you keep telling God and Moses, the will of God leaves us panting. We want something more than the way God's leading us. 
And the great peril of all of us Christians is we want more than God wants for us. And we don't want what he wants for us. We're panting for something we want, and we're not panting for the living God. It's okay to pant. Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for, for a new car. What? Yeah, talk to me. I'm the senior pastor. I'm used to yelling. Yell back at me if you know the answer. Righteousness. Now, when you pant for this stuff, you lose the pant for God. You can't pant for both. And so he said, they fell to panting. Well, what did that go to? Then it led to idolatry. And idolatry is uh, any time you fire God because you found something else you can trust. Americans do this with money. Uh, and what we're, do, we're nice to God. We still want to go to church, maybe. Uh, we still uh, uh, eke out a prayer once in a while. You know, good, good bread, good meat, goodness, let's eat. We may get that out. And, uh, but what we do, we just fire God and we elevate, I can trust this. I, because my significance and security is based upon what material goods I can manage. And, and, and it's a subtle sin because we don't think God knows we've switched gods, but he knows when we did it. It's, it's our most subtle sin. Uh, when you've switched gods, it's very subtle, and you've all of a sudden flip and just say, long as I have this, I'm secure and I'm significant and I don't need omnipotence. I like to have omnipotence as a second. It's good to have backup, you know. But it can't be first. This has got to be first. So my job dictates my life, the hours they want, uh, it, this. I got, I'd give more, but if I give away part of my God, uh, I'll have less God. So I've got to be a stingy uh, non-giver. And, and people who make money their God are just tight watch. They just make me break out in hives. God deliver me from them. It's terrible to be around greedy people. You'll never have your needs met. People have God first place become generous people because they use money for God and God's generous. God's generous. This is stingy. You can never get enough of this. And so he said they became idolaters. And get the idolatry. Get this. None of us are this insane, so let's just make fun of Israel, okay? When you get down here, hey, hey, let's have a worship service. Well, who do you want to worship? Let's worship the national God of Egypt that we've just been delivered from, and let's build a golden calf and celebrate Osiris, and we'll worship this calf uh, because all God did is got us through the Red Sea. All he's doing is leading us. He just defeated the world's greatest army. I'm going to do a little worship. Well, how about worshiping the God that delivered you? Oh, no. We want to deliver. We want to worship the gods we got used to, a golden calf. Moses is getting the law on the mount, and they're down here worshiping this calf, and God winds up killing 3,000 of them in a day idolatry. Now, he's applying this right to these believers. His chapter 10, verse 14, he's going to say, flee idolatry. Idolatry, I think, is maybe our greatest sin 
but it's so sophisticated, it's attitudinal with us and not as objectively visible. And so you can be an idolater without anybody knowing who your God is. But he warns him, don't turn to idolatry. Then he said, be careful of immorality, sexual immorality. He's been warning this church from chapter five, chapter six, don't get involved in immoral behavior. He said, privileged people can fall into a lot of sexual sin. Were, were they going to the promised land? Yeah, they were delivered. Did they reach the promised land? No. Some may say they lost their salvation over it. Some say, well, they just didn't get the reward. What's scary, not even Moses and Aaron made it. But Moses did show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, so I think he was saved. But he lost out. You see, I'm scared. I, you know, I know I've got heaven made because it's based upon what Christ did for me, and I trusted it. I, I know I've got heaven made. I, I'm, I feel as eternally secure in him as ever. What bothers me is how much messing up I can do before I get there. Run off with the wrong woman. Take money that's not mine. Get mad enough to choke somebody and start serving time. God's got a lot of his people in prison. A lot of Christians in prison. You can do a lot of messing up and still be God's child. And I think that's what he's saying. You proud and arrogant. I'm warning you, God had a people he brought out of Egypt, and they were all baptized in the same cloud, ate the same food, drank the same drink, had the same leader. Don't tell me they weren't blessed. Now, let me tell you what they did, though, on the way. And I'm warning you, Corinthians, you better bring your attitude in check because you're not any different from them. You're headed for a great fall. He goes on to say what else they did. He said uh, they were immoral. He said uh, we shouldn't test the Lord as some of them did. And you read this in the book of Numbers, uh, how they didn't like Moses, they didn't like the food, and they started complaining. And God said, well, I'll unleash some snakes and see if we can correct their attitude. And uh, so he cites that, and he finally says, and do not grumble as some of them did. And uh, I looked up this word grumble uh, because I was curious that I may have done it before. I'm not sure. Don't, Carolyn won't be in the services today. Uh, to complain give audible expression to unwarranted dissatisfaction. And in the Greek, it's a present active imperative. Stop doing it. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. I, I don't lie. I'm dissatisfied with what's going on. I, I thought the will of God was perfect, good, I don't like what, I don't like the journey. I don't like Moses. I don't like this. And they were grumbling in the camp all the time. And God just said, well, I'm going to kill you as much for grumbling as for being immoral. 
What if you thought God was going to strike you dead for grumbling? Grumbling, griping, complaining. We thought this was a disease of teenagers. It's a, it's a disease of all of us. You could just complain. You know, it's like coming from the poverty of Cuba and come back to the States and complaining that the water's not quite good enough or my house isn't quite, you know, nothing like seeing a little bit of poverty to see where you are. But you can gripe eating a $20 steak. Can't you? I love when I think of this word grumbling. My sister Hazel always brought her job home with her. Always brought her job home. Single gal. And she'd come home in the evening every night. We heard blow by blow what the office was like. I mean, uh, whether we wanted to or not. And she would say, boy, this and, and this person. And, and oh, you know, was unloading it and... <clears throat> And once in a while, my dad would just bow his head and he would do this little refrain. There be no grumblers there in my father's house. In my father's house. And all of a sudden, his voice would fade off as she was choking. And there be no grumblers there. She said, Daddy, you better stop. You better stop. I've got a steak knife in my hand. <laughs> and we're going to church. I don't want blood on my hands as we go to the youth meeting. Uh, but he had a way of just going, right, all right, we've heard it. Could you stop griping? And I wish we'd all learn that song. There'd be no grumblers there in my father's house. I never heard any grumbling all the time I was in Cuba. And the churches were so poor. And uh, it was so hot, so humid, the buildings just shanties, and the pastors fifteen dollars a month if they got that. But I did you hear any complaints from the people? Sing like they're in heaven, and uh, I think you have to hang around America to get the complaint department. And you have to watch; it can eat up a church, just a negative spirit. Uh, that some folks, we don't mind criticism from those who've earned the right. If you've never complimented us, would you just do us the favor of never telling us the negative? Because there's a lot of good things going on in this church. And if you don't know about it, you haven't earned the right to tell us about the negative. Yeah. Well, I thought that was part of church life. No, that's what's part of killing church life. He grieves the spirit. He gets quenched, and he quits working in the church because he can't work in gripers. He works in praiseworthy people that are giving thanks in spite of everything. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And what's negative, let's pray well. But grumbling never is. You know what? You never grumble while you're praising God. You've got to make the choice. This is very convicting, isn't it? I wish you'd quit hitting each other. Because grumbling is a part of church life. And uh, uh, let's get over it. Let's, I just turn it into intercessory prayer. Now, notice verse 11. These things happened to them 
as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Now, he doesn't want us to miss. He's not just trying to give a little Old Testament church history here. He said, I picked the material because I want to warn you. I'm talking to you. And so I'm going to take this passage and talk to you and warn you. What is the problem he's taking on? Verse uh, 12. So if you think you are standing firm, and they did, be careful that you don't fall. Uh, What is it? It's a warning of arrogant, self-centered pride. Uh, That... Why, why are you talking about that? Uh, do you ever pay attention to warnings, or do you just throw them over your back and just say, that couldn't be me? Uh, I'm, I am an exhorter, and I love to be exhorted. I heard Bruce Walkie say that one time. God's people love to be exhorted. It's the man that cannot be warned it's the person that can't, doesn't take it to heart. The person who said, well, I just heard another sermon. He had four Ps and missed the entire warning. Is the person that is set up to do the sin. Let me tell you something about being a preacher for over 50 years. I've seen a lot of men fall. A lot of them. I started with a lot of guys that no longer preach. I'm a fanatic, warning staff about who you're with, uh, what your morals like, how are you treating your wife. It is just old, you know, just basic old stuff, just like being pure. It's, just, it's not real deep. It's not real spiritual. Uh, uh, are you being faithful to your wife? Uh, are you watching pornography? Oh, I, I know it's holy. It's, it's a hang-up I've got because I've heard guys that preach like angels and one of my friends well, that he introduced me to Chuck Swindoll, could preach better than Chuck, but he was a womanizer, and he lost his ministry. He's back in the ministry, but he's a joke. He's a joke. He's a worship. I don't even know that I'll see him in heaven because he knows how to play the role while he still screws around on women. Has no business in the pulpit, but there's a lot of Christians in America that will pay you if you could talk good. You don't have to live anything, just talk good. Let me tell you, a man's character is more important than his charisma. His character. You can't trust him with your wife, and you can't trust him with your money. I don't want to hear him talk. Not for God. Maybe he needs to become a lawyer. Maybe a politician. Become anything, but don't be a spokesman for God. So, whoa, what are you doing? I'm telling you I've watched, I've observed. And about the time I'm coming out of the circles I grew up with, and we could lose our salvation easily, and by the time I'm coming to salvation thinking it's eternal, I, it seemed like every other preacher I knew was falling into some kind of sin, and I panicked, and I panicked. And I told my own wife, I'm getting out of the ministry. She said, why? I said, I'm next. I'm going, to, I'm going to be unfaithful to you. I, I can't stand. I don't have the strength. Better than me, men than me are falling. I don't have a chance. I'm just in my 20s. 
and all these friends of mine are falling into sin. It's just what God wanted me to do. Believe in security of the believer, but don't be arrogant because he can bring you down through your pride and still keep you eternally. And so what did I take from my life's ordination verse? I claimed the verse my dad taught me, Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne of his grace with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be both power, dominion, and glory forever. The conclusion of the book of Jude. So I said, God, I can't. I don't have the strength. I won't make it. I, I'm, I'm a statistic. I'm a has-been. And God said, you got it right. So you better stay low to the ground and you better rely on me or I'm going to see that you fail miserably because it's pride that would destroy any man. And that's what he's warning. Be careful if you think you can't fall, you arrogant know-it-alls. You know so much more than these weak brothers. You know, you know, and you're walking in pride, that pride that's puffed you up with your little knowledge. And I'm afraid, you know, let me tell you some stories. Uh, I was an outsider in most of the schools I went to. I was a Pentecostal boy in conservative Baptist schools or other schools. I was always the holy roller crowd. The little, they really bent the rules to even get me in. And I'd hear men talk. They, they, you hear people talk, well, your group, they, and they would talk about our people over here in our group, us Pentecostal, emotional, kind of uh, frothing at the mouth fanatics. The way they had some bad ways to describe us in the 60s. Holy rollers and all this stuff. And they said, boy, your people, they, your people do a whole lot of sinning, don't they? Because we'd have nationally known preachers that would fall and stuff. It wasn't long of being in conservative circles. I found out we got just as many falling. Because it doesn't matter what camp you're in, pride will eat your lunch no matter what camp you're in. And God gets no glory out of us throwing rocks at other parts of the family. All of us in this family have got to rely on the power of God or one day your attitude, your arrogance, your pride, God could bring you one trial. Did you know one trial can reveal you're not quite what you thought you were? So what does it do? It ought to make us scared to death to rely on ourselves and make us fear the Lord and rely on him. And that's what he's, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. If you think you stand, Pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. I'm just warning you, and you've got to sell it in the presence of God. Lord, search me. Am I arrogant? Am I conceited? And I, am I impressed with myself? Because I've never known of any man or woman falling while trusting in God. No one falls who's trusting God. We only fall when we trust our own resources. And so when your trust is in you, God would prove that your idol is weak, 
cannot hold you up. I don't care how macho you are, how moral you think you are. You can do what you never thought you could dream to do when you're apart from his power and enablement. I think of Uzziah, that great king of Israel. Fifty years was a king, and it said he had great success and he did good, but he said when he became powerful and prosperous, he became proud. He walked into the high priest's office. God turned him into a leper. They put him in a leper's house, and he died there all the rest of his days. For when he became prosperous, when he became successful, pride destroyed him. Uh, I think of Deuteronomy 8, when you come into the land and you get crops you didn't plant and wells you didn't dig and all of a sudden prosperity comes when you bunch of slaves that you never had and, and, and ever even dreamed of, beware lest you forget the God of the Exodus. Beware lest you forget where I brought you from. I was uh, met my oldest cousin yesterday grew up with my sister Hazel, and they tell all the war stories of being, uh, uh, you know, girls born in the 32, 1930, and growing up with all these poor Okies and all this poverty and all this tough life. It's like another land. I, I, I go set to hear ancient history. But what it does, uh, it's good for your family tree so you could tell your children, if you ever get cocky, I want you to know where he brought us from. We didn't always have this. We didn't always have this. So he's warning us of pride. And if we had time, I would tell you of just some stories. Haman, he's getting ready to get promoted, and he didn't know he's building gallows to be hung on. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, look at great Babylon I built, and he didn't know he had seven-year assignment of eating grass with the oxen, so God would teach him, don't strut on the walls of Babylon before me. I'll bring you to your senses by driving you insane. God resists the proud, and the worst place for it to ever show up is in church. Guess where sin started? In a brothel or in a worship center? In the very throne of God, a spirit being said, I will ascend, I will go up higher, I will place my throne above the throne of God. Sin didn't start in a brothel, it started at a worship center where the living God was in front of a spirit being who said, I like what you are. I want to go above you. And God said, for that, I will cast you down. And if you trace it in scripture, five steps down of Satan till he finally winds up in the lake of fire. Now, lest we despair, he gives us a promise. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now, let me say something about the word temptation. It's a neutral word. It's not a bad word. Temptation is really a good thing. God, don't tempt me anymore, but I mean, it can be good. Uh, Christ was tempted. 
God tempted Abraham. The word is neutral. The outcome is not, is not neutral. The test can come from a divine viewpoint. I'm going to test them to show that they're righteous, like he did Job. Like he said in Deuteronomy 8.3, I led you by this way in the wilderness to test you, to show you what was in your heart. So test, from God's point of view, is to show us his way out, sometimes to reveal to us uh, what we need to know. But James 1.13 said, he will never seduce you to evil, right? David's been taking you through. He said, it's never seduction to evil. So, but does God say he will test his people? Absolutely, over and over. But the test, we don't, we don't know what's in the tea bag until we put it in hot water, right? It, we, we just, uh, I'm going to put you in there. I really love you, Jesus. I really love you. He said, well, I'm going to just put you in a little water. Oh, I don't know if I do love you. I, I thought you were weak, but go ahead. We'll reveal what you are in a test. The test reveals what you are. Now, you may come out of it like Job. You may come through it like Joseph. Praise the Lord. That's God's, God's intention. But you may, Jesus, when he goes in the wilderness, God wants to show to us you can trust him. He can pass the test. Satan comes in the wilderness to seduce him to be evil. So the same situation, you got two forces working on him. But God will never seduce you to do evil. And he's saying right here, any temptation I allow you to go through will be a common one. There's no, have you ever said, nobody's ever gone through this before. Everybody's gone through it one way or the other. It's common. We're not that uncommon. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, uh, in this temptation, what will God do? God is faithful. Okay, that's good. What are you going to do? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So what does that mean? He measures out every test. Satan comes in with a one-ton test, and you're a one-ounce Christian. God rakes off everything. They can only bear up this much. A beautiful passage we don't have time to look at, John 18. When the soldiers came to get Jesus in the garden, he said, please let these men go, my disciples. They did. And then the verse says, he did this so that he would lose none. He knew they couldn't take the temptation at that time. He exempted them, got them freed from the soldiers. And then the verse qualifies it. He did this so that he'd lose none that God gave him. They weren't ready for the test. They need to go to Pentecost, get power, and they'll go to jail, they'll go to martyrdom, and they pass the test. They weren't ready in John 18. Have you ever noticed in your Christian life that God brings some test to you here that he would not dare give you back here? You, you couldn't have passed it back there. You wouldn't have the resources to get through it. Up here, he gives it. It's why you kind of want, want to pray for spiritual immaturity. Maybe the trials will be less. But, but according to Rich's book, you need to mature. So uh, anyway, a little pun on this side. Uh, he will not let you be tempted beyond what, well, I didn't bear it. So he didn't keep his word. Oh, no, he kept his word. You just didn't take his way of escape. 
You just weren't relying on him because he's made you a promise. I won't put more on you than you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. How does God get us through? I think that's the word. He gets you through. Well, I thought he said make a way of escape. I'm still in it. That might be the escape. Is he going to take you through it? I want the escape where I never even see it. How many cowards are in the place? Don't even let me get in it. He said, no, I'll see that you escape by getting you through it. I'll give you enough strength to bear it and get through it. Uh, it's this way. God could either keep you out of the fire or go with you through the fire. For the Hebrew children, he said, I'll go with you in the furnace and I'll be sure to keep your clothes from catching fire. Can you imagine some of the things God's people have gone through? God got me through it. God got me through it. The escape wasn't I didn't bury a child. The escape wasn't I didn't have physical ailments. The escape wasn't I didn't have financial uh, problems. The escape wasn't I didn't have bad neighbors, bad in-laws, bad kids, bad breath. It wasn't that. Everything was bad. God got me through it in his strength. It's not just exemption from it. In this world, you will have trouble of all kinds, whether you're a Christian or not. But he said, I give my promise to you. If you will not rely on yourself and your arrogant pride, but upon a God who is faithful, I've gotten thousands through before now, and I can get you through. So he makes a promise. I'm never going to allow any test in your life that I haven't already planned the way of escape. Can you trust me? Now imagine saying this to the children of Israel. Hey, didn't I get you out of Pharaoh's country? Didn't I open the Red Sea? Didn't I provide? Didn't I? Well, but you can't do it today. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I want some protein. I'm tired of Mama Moses' cookbook. If I eat one more piece of manna, I'm going to throw up. So said, no, no, we'll bring you quail burgers in the morning. And he did. But every time, they, 10 times they tested God in the wilderness. They grumbled. We don't like, we don't like. And so what did God do? In faithfulness, he killed them all. Everybody above the age of 20 who said, you can't get us there. You, God never will reward your unbelief. If you don't think he can, he can't for you. If you don't think he can, he won't for you. Because he will not reward your unbelief. It's an insult. Don't insult omnipotence. And if you do, he said, get out the shovel and dig another grave. Another one bit the dust. He buries a lot more of us from unbelief than he does immorality. We just don't believe he can do it. And God says, you know what? You didn't believe the spies, Caleb and Joshua. I'm gonna, you, said, you said nobody can get in there. I'm going to let your prophecy be fulfilling. 
but all those 20 and younger, I'll see to it that they enter the land because you guys said they can't even see it. I'll see to it that they see it, but not you. Let me say this. He's warning us. There is no reward for unbelief, and there is severe judgment coming if we're walking in pride on any level. Uh, you just can't make it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I prayed for humility for years, not because I wanted to be humble, but I didn't want to fall. You know what I just said? Is that, do I need to exegete it for you? Because I think I've got the ability to be as cocky as anybody in this place, especially when I was young, handsome, and I think I could whip you. You know, just the uh, barbaric in me. Who, don't talk about brains. Who cares if you're smarter if I could beat you? Boom. That's the Richmond mentality I grew up with. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But I prayed for humility because I ran scared most of my life. I ran scared. Because when you look to the side and I'd ask, where's brother so-and-so? He's no longer running. What happened? Well, he left his wife. Wait, 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 wait. He's pastoring this church. I know I'm supposed to be telling you this because you'll think every preacher I know has fallen. They're not. But just one is enough to scare a young preacher. And I see some in the church. You know why you're shelved? You know why God's through with you? He can't get you to repent of your pride. You're still self-sufficient. We probably see you in heaven, but we're not going to see you in the reward gallery because uh, you can't do it your strength. It's like our young guys in ministry. One of my greatest fears, if they preach so good their first time out that everybody wants to nominate them the preacher of the year. It's the worst thing that can happen to them. It's a great church to break in young preachers like we're doing because you'll pray for them. But I hope you'll be used to God to shrink our head too. We need head shrinkers. Keep our feet nailed. We aren't that good. Uh-uh. Oh, no, no, we're not that good. Who do we think we are? God has removed far better preachers than any preacher represented in this church. We're Twinkies. We're just Twinkies. I'd rather last and not be the best, but give God my best. And let all the accolades come when we stand in his presence. I don't need them all here. God, deliver me from the love of human praise. Although it feels good, it's very addictive, but it is also very ruinous if a man or woman haven't decided to give Jesus the glory. Pride destroys. So he warns them, don't be proud about how much you know, but just be humbled at how weak you can be apart from him. Father, we thank you for these dear saints. We thank you for your keeping power. We're all here because you've kept us. We may have fallen along the way, but you picked us up, dusted us off, and told us to run on. So we're seeking to run by faith and rely on you and not ourselves. We're weak to our toenails. 
So why should we kid anybody as though the strength were in us? The strength is in you. You are faithful. You're the one that's got us through every test, every trial, every temptation. The only victory has been the victory you brought. We give you glory, we give you honor, and we can tell the weakest believer you can make it because Jesus will get you through and he will keep his promise. And all of his people said, amen.